breeze, opening up to a changing world. Every Sunday morning at 9, I will be interviewing prominent speakers, experts in their fields, who have helped thousands of people to live more creatively in their personal and professional lives, and will help you to better understand the changing and challenging world we live in today. today on opening up to a changing world is Professor Frederick E. Trinkline, adjunct instructor of astronomy in the physical science department of Nassau Community College. And now, once again, your moderator, Fran Slotkin. Professor Trinkline is author of numerous books and articles. One of these, Modern Physics, is a widely used text on the subject. For his most recent book, The God of Science, Professor Trinkline traveled to 13 countries to interview Nobel Prize winners and other leading scientists. Fred, lecture consultant of Long Island, is honored to have a man of your stature who speaks on so many interesting subjects. Could you tell us a little about your lecture, Does Science Have a Conscience? Well, friend, the one thing that I learned in talking to scientists and particularly people as famous as Nobel Prize winners in various countries was that they were much more approachable than I had imagined they would be. Uh, the Nobel Prize is undoubtedly the most uh, widely known award in science and perhaps in any field and one would think that the people who win it would uh, be so high on a pedestal that they would uh, be reluctant to talk to people, uh, particularly someone who's not known to them. And the response I got was overwhelming. Uh, something like 50% of the letters I wrote in advance got favorable replies as had come. They were eager to talk uh, about the things I wanted to ask them. Could you name a few of the Nobel Prize winners you have interviewed? Well, I've been doing this now for some years, and perhaps the uh, interview that gave me the most pleasure was the one of Dr. Max Born, who was a personal friend for many years of Albert Einstein. Uh, other Nobel Prize winners uh, in this country were men like uh, George Beadle. Uh, foreigners, again, uh, Werner Forsman in Germany. Uh, the man who in, invented the transistor, Walter Bratton, uh, and I could go on. I, I can imagine why um, the high school and college students have been so excited about the lectures you have been doing there this past year. Um, is there a change in attitude toward the awe-inspiring achievement of winning the Nobel Prize? Well, I've asked this question of a number of people who won the prize and the reactions are rather interesting. One man, for example, who didn't receive the prize until some 20 or 25 years after he had done the work, told me that about the only change in his life was that he now smoked bigger cigars. But uh, a more uh, serious outcome of winning the Nobel Prize was one that I recall Dr. Beadle, who was at the time of the interview uh, just recently retired as the president of the University of Chicago, 
the reaction was that he was almost sorry that he had won the prize because now people expect him to be an authority in everything. And they had quite a problem. He said it is true of many of the others as well. A problem in living down this kind of reputation that people would write and come to them for advice in areas where they were not experts. Uh, somehow they didn't have the impression that a scientist is a person who achieved something in one narrow field and is not necessarily now a person who can solve all our problems. Oh, well, that's, that's a thought. What are some of the provocative questions asked following your lecture? Well, as you know, the uh, reputation of science in the last 20 years has gone through something of an evolution in the 50s, especially after the launching of the first satellite, science uh, became a top priority in this country and students were eager to rush into the field and uh, to help this country excel in the sciences. Then um, in the 60s, a reaction began to set in and uh, things like the uh, pollution of our environment and the proliferation of nuclear power were sources of disillusionment to students, and they uh, did not enroll for the sciences in high school and college uh, in the numbers that they had previously. Now we're in a period where we're trying to find the middle ground between these two extremes, and the questions I get from students are where does science fit in now in helping to solve our problems of the environment and of overpopulation and pollution and so on. I should think many students might question you about careers in science. I remember when I was in school, there were there were just so many engineers, and they weren't able to get jobs following uh, their degree, and so many young men and women did not pursue it. Well, as a matter of fact, there were very few women at that time, but I think there were many more women in the science field now. Do students ask you about uh, what are the chances of working in, in various areas of science. Yes, they do, and of course you put your finger on a peculiar phenomenon of uh, the job market right now, and that is that the best thing you can have going for you in getting a job not only in the sciences but in other fields is to be a woman, because they're looking for uh, qualified women in all fields. Um, unfortunately, the prediction of the job market is a very difficult one. Uh, a high school student because by the time he gets through four or five or six years of training in college, the market has changed. So what I tell them and what, I, what the scientists and laureates have told me too is to find the thing you're interested in and good at and pursue it and it will always be true that eventually the person who excels in his field uh, will find employment in that area. But in the meantime, he should also, he or she should be prepared uh, to do some other kind of work that opens up. I can give you an example from my own daughter because she uh, is an astronomer or majored in astronomy in college but has not as yet found employment in that field. In the meantime, since she also had work uh, in school on computers, she's doing very well in that field. Yes, that, that is a big field and a still growing field yes. and a great mystery to many of us. So they should always be prepared, at what I'm saying, uh, for at least two eventualities. You should have double majors if possible in college because of the uncertainty of the job market. Very good advice from a scientific mind. Fred, uh, before I go on to your uh, exciting program, 
concerning the eclipse chasers. Uh, in your lecture programs on uh, interviewing the Nobel Prize winners, besides speaking, do you bring along uh, equipment, tapes, or how do you handle that? The interviews I have are, uh, for the most part, tape recorded. So uh, for the sake of accuracy and also to make sure that I can check back with the people I'm quoting in books and periodicals, uh, that I'm not saying something you didn't say. Other than that, uh, I have photos of uh, many of the experiences and, of course, anecdotal records and so on. But, uh, when you interview a person of this kind, it's really rather difficult to uh, to project what the person is doing and where he's doing it. You can't, after all, bring his whole laboratory. But uh, one thing that uh, I think people need to understand, and particularly students in high school, is that a laboratory is not necessarily a place with a lot of equipment. A laboratory is a place where a person does his thinking. And as one a laureate told me in Switzerland, uh, the United States doesn't have a corner on laboratory equipment. A person sitting in a little room somewhere in a, a small country that doesn't have much research money can do original thinking too. Science is a way of thinking, let's put it that way. It's not a lot of tools and equipment or even facts. It's a way of thinking. And I think uh, the um, phrase think tank that's right. That's right. I, I've even been in laboratories. I was recently invited, for example, to the Bell Telephone Laboratory to uh, watch how the thousands of scientists work there. And uh, the people who plan the overall activities of the laboratory uh, don't even go into the laboratory, as you say. They're, they're the think tank who organize the whole thing. So science is thinking. It's not just tools. Now I'd like to get uh, your article to, to your program on uh, expeditions to the eclipses. In your recent article, Following the Sun, published in the uh, latest issue of Airways in Flight by Qantas, you tell us about your eclipse expedition. How, how did it all get started? And tell us a little bit about the solar eclipse expedition. As a science teacher, prior to eclipses uh, were part of the curriculum since I was teaching general science at one time. Uh, eclipses always uh, were a rather exciting and dramatic part and an appealing part of the course of study for my classes. So I began to uh, watch to see when an eclipse, and you must differentiate between partial eclipse and a total one. Uh, only the total ones are really very exciting. A partial eclipse uh, is like a cloudy day, but a total eclipse is a very dramatic and sudden darkening of the sun. Uh, the one that came closest uh, at the time I was first here in New York was in 1963, which happened to pass in the state of Maine. So since our family did a lot of camping, uh, we packed our camper and finally went up to central Maine to watch for the eclipse. It was cloudy, but by chasing the clouds during the eclipse, we did manage to see just at the exact moment of the eclipse, a clearing in the sky, and from that, at that point on, we were hooked. I was hooked, for sure. And, and, and then you started to form 
getting students together and for example in 1970 I took my first uh, group of students and adults from southern Mexico to see it. this time it was perfectly clear and it was a very dramatic event. And I know the uh, safari to the African clips, I, I've seen the film several times, um, co-produced by you and your wife Margaret, whom I'm going to interview in just a few minutes. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that trip? I know you had many exciting happenings besides the uh, happening of the eclipse itself. There's no doubt that the trip to Africa, uh, aside from the eclipse, was the most unusual because we had to set up our eclipse camp in a very desolate region of East Africa on the shores of Lake Rudolph. Uh, this involved making arrangements with safari outfitters in Nairobi. It uh, involved making uh, agreements with uh, local uh, politicians and, and other uh, people who were in charge of the area. And even then, uh, some things happened that we hadn't planned on, uh, both from standpoint of the people and the wildlife in the area. So it, it was most exciting and very dramatic. At this point, I'd like to introduce you to Margaret Trinkwine, homemaker, mother of five, with a background in education, who has worked as an editorial assistant. Tell us about your part in these expeditions, Margaret. Well, Fran, the original uh, way that I got involved was as secretarial assistant to Fred when he did the interviews of the Nobel Prize winners over in Europe. And it was really more of a background uh, position. I was more of an observer. But as uh, things developed, we did this trip in film and sound when we returned in order to share it with our friends. And this uh, became then my most important function as we travel, to collect uh, local sounds on tape recording to suggest certain slides that might fit in to uh, represent what we would like to show our friends, uh, to collect literature on the trip, describing the places where we were, filling in some background which we were not able to get here in the States before we left. Well, it sounds to me as if you've become, and viewing the film, uh, that you have become something of a communications expert or a media expert. And also that uh, you went through a dramatic change in your own life. Oh yes, yes. The uh, some traveling I had done throughout my life, but the exciting part that this brought to it was the fascinating personalities that we would meet in each of the cases, uh, the Nobel Prize winners themselves, but on the trips to the solar eclipses, the people that. Um, decide to go on these things are, are just fascinating people. Their background, they're varied, and uh, I've loved meeting them. Then, of course, there's also the cultural impact of each community that we go into, and they are all over the world. Uh, also, we plan usually to visit some archaeological sites or museums, things of this type, on the way, and it's just a, a fascinating trip, and I, I enjoyed it immensely. Um, Margaret and Fred, do you feel that this unique expedition to view the total e solar eclipse uh, came about as a direct result of your family interests? There's no doubt about that, Fran. In fact, I recall that when uh, Margaret and I were uh, first going together, that one thing 
we had in common was the uh, interest in traveling that Barton just talked about and the desire to do as much of it as possible uh, once we were married. And as the children came along, uh, this didn't particularly uh, change the situation any because we found that it was quite uh, possible to take a camping trailer and to put the children into it and uh, start moving. So even before these trips started, we had seen just about all the states of the Union uh, from a camping trailer. Can you give us a preview of your plans for the upcoming excursion this fall? Well, because of the response we have gotten to the original literature, it appears that uh, it will probably be a four-week excursion which will include both New Zealand and New Zealand, as well as the Australian part of the trip. So it should be a truly fascinating trip. Uh, we'll uh, hit Fiji and Hawaii also on the way back. You should mention that the uh, eclipse itself, the path of totality from which you can see the maximum darkness, will be in Australia again this year, as it was in 1974. There's nothing we can do about that. That we uh, learn from predictions and computerizations of the path and the time. And this time the path goes right through the city of Melbourne. And we have reserved the use of an airfield uh, some 80 miles west of Melbourne to set up the equipment for our party. And with the cooperation of the local government there, they're going to shut the airfield down for a few hours so that we have maximum use of it. Did you mention the date? Of oh, the exact date of the eclipse is October 23rd. So in order to see the other things that we have planned for the people who are going on the trip, it will be necessary for some of them to leave a week before that time, and in some cases even two weeks ahead, so that they can see the north and south island of New Zealand, and then participate in trips to observatories after the eclipse in that area, as well as a week in the interior of New Guinea. You know, I'm sure a question our uh, listening audience might be thinking of, and I uh, know I discussed this with you before. The composite of the group going, are these mostly scientists? What about the age? Well, all ages are represented. We've had in Africa, for example, people ranging in age from 15 to 79. Many of them are scientists, but not necessarily astronomers. There are great many uh, doctors and lawyers and accountants and students and people we like to call eclipse enthusiasts. And this last time in 74 on the trip to Australia, we introduced a new feature to the expedition, and that is that my co-director, Dr. George A. Bell of UCLA, and I lectured every day during uh, the trip, and people who were interested in receiving college credit for this were able to sign up for it take their examination on the plane on the way home. So we're doing this again this time. And in addition to Dr. A. Bell and myself, we will also have as a lecturer uh, the founder of the Celestron Pacific Telescope Company, who will not only lecture us in this field, but also help people take pictures through telescopes. Are there still openings for your expedition uh, to Australia? Should any of our listeners be interested? Yes, and there are some openings, although the number, of course, is limited. Uh, I don't think we mentioned that the participants will be getting together at three rather widely separated staging areas. There's one in New York, 
and then we will be flying out and meeting a group in San Francisco, and then those two groups will proceed to Honolulu, and we will meet more of the groups there. Well, let's just say that information can be obtained uh, on the next solar eclipse expedition by writing to Francois and Pierre Station, WLIX. And I would like to thank you, Professor Fred and Margaret Trinkline, for meeting with us today and helping us to understand the universe a little better and for bringing a personal touch to your marvelous expeditions and interviews with award-winning scientists. This is Brian Flotkin, Electric Consultant, looking forward to being with you next week. Special guests on Opening Up to a Changing World.